Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Philip Brooks made an apt comment when he said, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. We come to the end of our series today on Samson. We've been in Samson for four weeks. And Samson only takes up three chapters of our Bible, Judges chapter 14 through Judges chapter 16. We looked at Samson's exploits as he pridefully uh, stood with the power of God and the presence of God on him, not in pride of God, but in pride of his strength. His strength became his weakness in the sense that he allowed the physical strength that he had been given by God because of the Nazarite vow on his on his body, because of the Nazarite vow that he had taken, um, his hair was long, right? That was a part of the Nazarite vow. He wasn't supposed to drink of the fruit of the vine, which is wine, or any hard liquor. He wasn't to touch any dead animal or dead human being or go near the presence of a dead body. And nor was he ever to have his hair cut. So from birth, raised by his mother and his father, his hair had grown. It grew so long that he had to braid it. And he braided it in seven rows, like cornrows, like I mentioned last week, on his head, because the braided hair is shorter than just hair that's left to grow long. We figured out that Samson's vow to God through the Nazarite vow and trying to uh, uphold those three different things that kept his vow intact to God was something that Samson didn't take very seriously. Last week, we looked at Samson and Delilah. You know the story, or at least you've probably heard of it. Delilah, more than likely a prostitute, Samson fell in love with. She was a Philistine woman. She tried to get Samson to tell her the secret of his strength. What makes you so strong? How can you pull up doorposts and doors and all of a city gate and carry them off on your shoulders to the hill across the way? How are you able to do that? How are you able to kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey? How are you able... To, to overcome all of the other strong men. What is the secret to your strength? And three times, Samson tells her, well, here's how you can subdue me. And then after three failed attempts, because he lied to her about the secret of his strength, he, she begins to, it, the scripture says, nag him to the point where he is just done with it and instead of walking away saying all right i'm done with you nagging woman he tells her the secret of his strength and we think well why in the world would he tell her the secret of his strength 
Because I believe that Samson was arrogant and pompous enough to believe that his strength was in and of his own physical abilities. I think he'd been told as a kid, you're a Nazarite. God has imbued you with strength and a purpose from the time you were in your mother's womb. And I think he'd never truly had that tested. I, we, we've seen him break the vows of, of his Nazarite commitment by being in a vineyard, more than likely drinking or eating grapes from the vineyard. We see him touching carcasses or making carcasses. The only thing he'd never try. He's like, well, I've broken those two vows and I've still got my strength. And then last week, Delilah tricks him finally in a fourth attempt to get him to tell her the secret of his strength. He'd never had his hair cut. But God's been with him up to this point. He's lived like a scoundrel pretty much. Yeah, it's in my hair. That's the only thing that I've not broken yet. But he didn't know for sure. And so while he lay on her lap, she called in a man with shearing scissors to cut the locks of his hair off. She yelled out to him one last time, Samson, the Philistines are here to capture you. He rises just like the previous three times, thinking he's going to overtake them. He didn't realize that his strength had left him, but in Judges chapter 16, verses 1 through 22, it says he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. See, the strength wasn't in his hair. It was in the presence of God on him. Verse 22 says something very poignant. Before long, Samson's hair began to grow back. That's where we left off last week. At the end of the story last week, We talked about how pride, how strength can become a weakness, how your pride and your strengths and your abilities can become your downfall, as they did to Samson. Samson now finds himself captured by the Philistines. His eyes are gouged out. The window of his body that was the problem of his lust after these women is now gone. His strength is now gone. He is just a regular man imprisoned in a, in a granary, grinding grain as a blind man. That was a job reserved for mules and donkeys. But they took Samson and forced him to grind grain. And then whenever they wanted to, they would bring him out at certain times to laugh and mock at him and to say, ooh, the great strength of Samson. Let's bring him out and show off our trophy to everybody else. Look who we've captured. And this is where we pick up the story this week. Judges 16, starting with verse 23. The Philistine rulers held a great festival, offering sacrifices and praising their God. Now, the pronunciation of this is Dalgon. Uh, 
where I'm from, we call it Dagon. Um, so if I interchange those, just keep that in mind. Their Dagon God uh, is who they worship. This was, let me pause there for a minute. The God called Dalgon or Dagon or Dagon was actually a grain God. The Philistines farmed the land. They had grain coming out their ears. That's what they were known for. They were also a seafaring people. More than likely, it seems that they had come from the island of Crete uh, and the Minoan culture and sailed down the Mediterranean and set up in, in, on the coastal area of the lower part of, of the Mediterranean next to where Israel current day Israel is in the in the strip of land um, where Gaza is and so the the god called Dagon was actually half fish half human so no matter what you see in films and different things about Samson I've seen different statuettes and stuff of this god but the actual historical figure would have been the lower part would have been a fish body and the upper part would have been the body of a female, the head of a woman. Sounds like a mermaid, doesn't it? But instead of being a sea god or an ocean god or a water god, this was a god of grain. And so this figure would have stood in the temple in Gaza or Ashdod. It would have been this picture or this image Whenever uh, the Ark of the Covenant, if you, if you know anything about uh, the exploits of Saul and David, whenever the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines and taken to, to the land of the Philistines, uh, and it was taken into their temple, do you know what happened to the God, the statuette? It fell and broke, and it kept falling and breaking, and it would curse the Philistines, so much so to the point that eventually they sent the Ark of the Covenant back on a wagon pulled by two oxen and sent it off in the direction of where the Jews were and said, we don't want your Ark anymore. It's kind of freaky. All right. Sorry, a little history lesson, but picture in your mind this God. They have come together, the Philistines, after besting Samson. They bring him out in this festival. They said, our God has given us victory over our, over our enemy Samson. Interestingly enough, they think that their God, Dagon, has overcome Samson and that their God has shined down upon them to give Samson over to them. They don't realize that it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that has left Samson, thus causing him to be weak enough to be captured because of his own foolishness and pride. But the Philistines have, 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 have convinced themselves in their own pride, in their own arrogance, it's all about what our God did that allowed us to be over, able to overcome Samson. When the people saw him, it goes on to say, they praised their God saying, our God has delivered our enemy to us. The one who killed so many of us is now in our power. Oh, how quickly pride and arrogance can switch hands. Half drunk by now. Yes, that word drunk in the Hebrew is the same word for drunk in English. They were plastered or halfway plastered. 
The people demanded, bring, bring out Samson so he could amuse us. I'm not joking. This is how they did it. Bring out Samson so that he can amuse us. Let's get our trophy and toy around with him. Hmm. So he was brought out from the prison to amuse them. And they told him, or excuse me, and they had him stand between the pillars supporting the roof. <laughs> That's a big mistake. Samson said to the young servant who was leading him by the hand, place my hands against the pillars that hold up the temple. I just want to rest against them. Now, for all Samson knows, his strength is still gone. He's still a weak and broken, blind man. And now he's standing in front of 3,000 drunken Philistines, laughing and mocking him. Now the temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine rulers were there. How many rulers of the Philistines? All of them. All the Philistine rulers were there, and there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof who were watching as Samson amused them. Then Samson prayed to the Lord God, or to, to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. You notice a change in perspective, a change in tone. After Samson had killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey just a couple weeks ago when we looked at that passage, He's now dying of thirst, or so he thinks. And the only time we hear him cry out to God is in that one time before this last prayer. And what does he say? Aren't you going to give me something to drink? God, look at all that I did. His tone's changed a bit, hasn't it? Why does it take, now this is, let me step aside from my message for a minute. Why does it take some people to be brought so low before they realize who God is and what God wants from them and what God desires for them? How much, how low, and this is not limbo, how low can you go? How low is one individual willing to go before they get to the point where they say, okay, I can't do it anymore? How low do you go before you get to the point of humility where you say, God, it's all about you, it's never about me? There is no strength in me apart from you. There is no goodness in me apart from you. There is no hope in me apart from you. How low do you have to go? 
Then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple, and pushing against them with both hands, he prayed, Let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people, so he killed more people when he died than he had during his entire lifetime. Later, his brothers and other relatives went down to get his body. They took him back home and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol, where his father, Manoah, was buried. Samson had judged Israel for 20 years. What we learn in these few verses today is this. Humility leads to victory. Without humility, there is no victory. You might get a false image of victory. You might get what the world calls victory. But the world's, the world's idea of victory and success is actually very empty compared to the victory that God gives through humility. I've never once read in all the 66 books of the Bible where God blesses the arrogant and prideful person. Not once. Now, it may seem like it for a time, but in the end, there's always defeat. Pride is what brought Satan so low. Pride continues to bring Satan to even lower depths. And he's accursed, along with the demons of hell. That's why hell is a place that was created by God to cast him and his minions into. It was never created for you and me. But there's so many of us, I think, a lot of times following the path of Samson or even the Philistines to think we've got things figured out and, and look, look how good I've got it right now. And I don't, I don't go to church. I don't believe in God. And even Christians, believers in Christ, ask the question, God, why does it seem like the wicked prosper and the faithful wither? But do they really? If you're looking through human eyes instead of the eyes of God, you may deceive yourself or be deceived into believing the world has it so much better than God's people do because God's people are persecuted. They're held down. They're pushed back. They're trampled on. Why does it seem like the rest of the world has so much more blessings than we do? Don't deceive yourself. They don't. They are just as empty, if not more so, than the regular person you pass on the street. Filling themselves and filling that void that God should be filling in their lives with sexuality issues or drugs or alcohol or gossip or, or dissension or division or unforgiveness or bitterness or resentfulness. And sadly... We allow the enemy to deceive us as believers in Christ that they've got it so much better off and then we get the seed of bitterness, resentfulness, unforgiveness, all of these things planted in our own hearts and if we don't take that out by the root, then we become just the way the world is. 
How do you think the enemy infiltrates the church? The way he infiltrated the garden before the fall in Genesis 1 and 2. He infiltrates a garden with crafty speech, with deception, with, with lies, uh, or what, what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, with high-sounding nonsense and these empty philosophies that we can get easily convinced by. The world has a very convincing argument. You can see this in the universities. This is why a lot of parents fear to send their kids to university anymore, especially those of us who are believers in Christ, because we think, oh, they're going to get, they're going to leave the church. They're going to leave their faith behind. Why? Because of the high sounding nonsense and empty philosophies of the university or that the world betrays. I digress. Let me move on. Pride leads us to believe we're victorious when instead we're on the verge of defeat. And I put that in there not for Samson's sake, but for the Philistines' sake. Because isn't that what they did? Look what our God has done for us. Dagon has, has delivered Samson to us. Hasn't he, she, fish? Look what, and they praised their God twice within a, the first few verses there. Our God has handed Samson over. Actually, Samson's God handed him over to you because Samson's God with, withdrew from Samson. <laughs> oh, how deceived we become. It's like sitting in a basketball game or a football game and it looks like the game's won. How many of you have ever left a game early thinking that it's over with only to get halfway home and hear on the radio there was a last minute turnaround? <laughs> right? This is the same thing with Samson here. The winning team, it's about five seconds before the buzzer and they're like, our God has delivered Samson to us. Woohoo! And they're doing a victory dance, and all the crowds around are saying, oh no, or yay. And in just the last few seconds, the winning shot. How many of us are walking out of the game too early? Because we've convinced ourselves that we know, we know more than the coach on the sideline about that last minute play he's been keeping in his pocket that will win the game. How many of us are arrogant enough to walk away when the best is yet to come? Let me, let me ask you this. Um, have you ever wanted to walk out and just leave the faith altogether? You ever just wanted to leave it all behind? Because, well, I'm not going to be a part of that group of people or that. They're judgmental, they're hypocritical, they're da 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 fill in the blank. And we can be hard on the church, and God is hard on the church at times too. But let's be honest. <laughs> is there a perfect physical church out there anywhere? I heard a couple of you say no. I'm guessing some of you believe there is. There is no perfect church in the world. 
And I know that sounds antithetical or contrary to the word of God, but let me, let me clarify what I'm saying here. The only thing that makes the church perfect is the head of the church. The head of the church is Christ. And because of Christ, the church can be perfect as he is perfect. But without Christ, the church is imperfect. It's just a bunch of people that gather together. If you're gathered together today for any other reason because of your love of Jesus Christ, it's not a social club. So when the going gets tough and when things start happening, when problems invade the church or when this person hurts your feeling or that person offends you or this person is not wearing the right kind of clothes or shoes or whatever the case is, fill in the blank, then the enemy has swayed you to his belief and he has overcome you through deception. When he can get you focused on anything and everything other than Christ Jesus then he's won the battle over your heart, your mind, and your soul. See, this is what was happening in the early church. This is most of Paul's letters to the church. Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians were all to combat false teaching that had entered the church. How did false teaching enter the church? Because people didn't know the apostles' teaching well enough. They didn't know the word of God well enough. They weren't following Jesus close enough. And they were easily deceived by high-sounding nonsense and empty philosophies that seemed to be super convincing. Well, that seems right. Am I dishonoring God if I don't wear a tie? I've heard that a million times over. In the church of God, which this church is a part of, Anderson, Indiana, it was sinful to wear a tie for the first 20 years of our existence. Did you know why? Because it was considered an outward adornment. It was considered prideful. We wouldn't even allow our buttons to show on our shirts. You know what they would do with the shirts? They would actually make a, an extra little flap to cover the buttons because buttons were considered an outward adornment. They wouldn't wear jewelry, not even a wedding ring, because it was considered an outward adornment. And yet we get caught up in this stupid nonsense today to think it's, it's this or it's that when it has nothing to do with what Jesus died for. Jesus would probably not be welcome on most of the stages of our church facilities to preach a message today because of the way he looks, because of the way he... Do you know they didn't have deodorant back in those days? They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have deodorant. They had servants at most homes to wash the muck off the feet. And no, they did not take daily baths. Jesus would not be, sadly, and it's a sad testimony of the state of affairs in the American church today, that Jesus wouldn't be welcome into the midst of what we call church. Because we're too prideful to look at what's most important. That we hold on to those things that we have made sacrosanct that in the grand scheme of eternity won't mount to a hill of beans. Why is the church and our culture dying? I heard a statistic this week at camp meeting. The average church attendance, if you will, is 1.9 times per month. 1.9. Two times a month. At, let's just say, two hours a time. 
that's four hours a month, four hours times... Four hours times 12 is what? 48, nearly 50 hours a month, or year. I had somebody calculate for me in one of my classes, how many hours are there in a year? 365 days times 24, it's just over 8,700 hours a year. In the average church attendance, this is just Sunday mornings, if we're even able to get people out for that, it's two times a month. And, and this is two hours per time, maybe. I'm being uh, gracious to give it that. 50 hours a year committed to the fellowship. What did the early church devote themselves to? I said this in our communion service this morning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. It says they met in the temple daily. They shared meals together with glad and sincere hearts. If anybody had need, somebody who had something would sell it off and give the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to those who had need. There was no need in the body of Christ. They knew what they were about. They were hyper-focused on Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working. In them. And it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, that they stood in awe. You know that word awe means fear? It was a holy, reverent fear because of what the apostles were doing in their midst. Signs and wonders were happening on a regular basis. We strain to see anything of miraculous content in the body of Christ today in our culture. I've way gone off on a tangent. But here's what happens. It's because pride has entered the body of Christ in our church today, and we think, I don't have time. I can barely squeeze in a Sunday morning to go and fellowship with the believers in the, in the facility we call church, knowing that the facility isn't the church. It's the people of God. I mean, I can't, are you serious? Can I, um, I can maybe squeeze in a growth group maybe twice a month. I can give you, I'll give you a little bit, but, but I'm so overbooked. Uh, my kids got this event and that event and we allow our kids to drive our schedules and then our own work drives our schedule. And then at the end of the day, we realize, oh shoot, I didn't even spend time with the Lord in prayer or study of the word. So I'll, I'll do it over tomorrow. Maybe I can squeeze it in. God, I'll say a couple sentences before I eat in the morning and maybe at lunch. Why is the church in our culture so powerless? Why don't we see signs and wonders? Because we're devoted to the wrong things at the wrong times. And we've allowed the enemy into deceiving us that our little G gods are more important than the big G God we say we worship. Much like the Philistines, we've convinced ourselves that we are victorious because I got that extra bonus, or we are victorious because of X, Y, fill in the blank. When true victory comes through humility rather than through pride or any kind of worldly success. Being humble drives us to repentance and reliance on God. See, the, the one of the reasons we don't like humility, because it drives us to repentance and reliance on God than, rather than yourself. 
How many of you love the, the model of repentance? Because here's the thing, in order to repent, what do you have to do? You have to admit that you're wrong. You have to revoke the life you've been living. And you have to follow Christ. Well, I do follow Christ, Brandon, but this sin has got such a hold on me. If you were in Christ, you were a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The believer in Christ doesn't continue in sin. Why? Because they've died to sin and have risen to new life in Jesus Christ. They don't continue a pattern that's going to separate them from God for eternity. Well, Brandon, I've been hearing you preach that even since the Cain and Abel series last month. It's kind of getting old. Okay, get on to a new topic. The true topic is, though, that sin separates us from God, and God came to bring us life and to bring us life to the full, and we can't experience life to the full until we die to self daily, take up our cross, and follow Christ. There's no other way. And the problem is we, we can't let go of these pet things in our lives that have taken such root in our lives that have convinced us that we need them more than we need God. But God doesn't live right next to or in the midst of sin. He wants you to give him your sin because he died for it anyway. He doesn't want you to hold on to it. You can't hold on to him if you're holding on to something else. You can't grab on to him if you're grabbing on to something else. This is why Jesus says even, and this hits super close to home for everybody, unless you hate your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, you can have no part of me. Have you heard that verse of scripture before? Do you know those came straight from the lips of Jesus? Well, wait a minute. Jesus says, I'm supposed to love. They'll know, where, they'll know we are uh, his disciples by our love for one another. And now he's telling us to hate? Now, what he is saying is this, and if you understand the context, it goes something like this. Your love for me should be so much greater that your love for everybody else looks like hatred. Can you say that? Can you say, God, you love, you love him with such a passion and a fervor that your love for him makes all the other loves in your life look like hatred? He's not telling you to go hate people. He's saying, you need to love me more or this thing's not going to work out. Being humbled drives us to repentance and reliance upon God. When was the last time you relied on anybody but yourself? And you might say, well, actually, I rely on a lot of people other than myself. Good. When was the last time you relied on God more than anybody else? See, what happens is when tough times come, we oftentimes grope in the dark at whatever we can grab onto to keep from sinking. We see this countless times in the, in the Gospels where the boats are rocking 
and the disciples are scared because the waves are crashing in. It looks like they're going to sink. Jesus is sleeping uh, in the bow of the ship one of those times, and one of the disciples wakes him up and says, Don't you care? We're going to die. And Jesus, hang on a minute. What's wrong with you guys? Peace, be still. Instantaneously, the wind and the waves stop. And the disciples say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves listen to him? Some of you are in the biggest storms of your life right now. Some of you have been rocked to the core. And you're, 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 you're trying to keep the water out of the boat. And I see you bailing. And I see you bailing the water out. And, and you're like, oh, God, what's, gonna, what's happening? What's happening? Last ditch attempt. You think God's asleep. And in your own pride, you rely on yourself to keep the boat afloat when you need to say, we're beyond help. Jesus, are you there? Some of you haven't gotten to that point because you're still relying on your own strength. Like Samson relied on his own strength until God left and he realized he didn't have strength anymore. And some of you are functioning out of strength that is really weakness instead of functioning out of weakness that should be your strength. Because it's when you're weak that you're really strong. Isn't that what Paul said? I will glory all the more in my weakness because it's when I'm weak that I'm strong. It's when I'm weakest that I realize I can't rely on me anymore. Samson is standing there between the pillars and he knows that God is still not with him, but he's saying, God, just if can you listen to me one more time? I've learned my lesson. I'm, I'm at the end of my rope, the bottom of the barrel. I just ask you, hear me one last time. And yes, I guess I'm asking for revenge against those that have gouged out my eyes. But God, I know that the Philistines are also your enemies. Can you just help me? And Samson, in that moment, with 100% reliance upon God and trust in God, pushed. Not caring for his own life anymore. He wasn't suicidal. He was just at the point of complete surrender. I'll do whatever you want. I'm just asking for you to hear me one last time. Humility brings greater action and victory than pride ever can. Humility always brings greater action and greater victory than pride ever can. Hundreds of years after Samson, the Apostle Paul would write this letter to the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi was a small church, house church, and he wrote four chapters to them. Of course, we didn't get our chapters till later on, but he wrote this short letter to them. And what we call Philippians chapter two is one of the most powerful treatises on who God is 
and what humility is. Can I read you this? Philippians chapter 2, 3 through 11. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Stop for a second. <laughs> what kind of attitude do you have right now? What kind of attitude? Are you angry? What are you angry about? Are you sad? What are you sad about? Are you happy? Are you frustrated? Are you resentful or bitter? What kind of attitude do you have? Is it negative? Glass half empty? Are you optimistic? Why? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. You know what that says? You know what that means? Paul is claiming and stating very rightly that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. And Jesus knew he was God in the flesh. And though he was God, he didn't walk around demanding what God could have demanded from us. He didn't, he didn't walk around, hey, I'm God. You need to do what I say or you're going to hell. Now, he was harsh, and yes, he did talk about the judgment of God. You can't, you can't read the Gospels and not see he laid the law down, so to speak. But he was full of grace as well as truth. You need to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God and he knew it, he didn't walk around strutting his stuff in this prideful, arrogant way, and he's one who could have if he wanted to. But he didn't. You need to have that same attitude. Instead, verse 7, it says, he gave up his divine privileges. What were the divine privileges he came up, he gave up? God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, confined himself to a body, a physical body, a broken body, a body that was prone to bleed, a body that, that could get disease, a body that could get hurt, a body that could physically die. God limited his powers so he could embody this flesh that we have that hurts when it's broken. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took a humble human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross, though he was not a criminal. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what our attitude should be like. 
The door of life is a mystery. It becomes slightly shorter than the one who wishes to enter it, and thus only the one who bows in humility can cross its threshold. The handbook of magazine article writing contains this illustration by Philip Barry Osborne. Listen to this. Alex Haley, the author of of Roots. Have you ever heard of the book Roots? It was turned into a, a, a movie. He has a picture in his office, and I may have told you this illustration before, but it bears repeating. Uh, Alex Haley has this picture in his office showing a turtle sitting on top of a fence post. The picture is there to remind him of a lesson that he learned a long time ago. If you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, you know that he had some help getting up there. Alex says... Anytime I start thinking, wow, isn't this marvelous, all that I've been able to accomplish, everything that I've been able to do, I look at that picture and I remind, I remind myself of how this turtle got up on the post and how I too am where I'm able to be in life. You see, Samson would have to be humbled in order to have the most strength he could ever have had in his lifetime. Oh, sure, he could kill lions, he could strike down a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, but his greatest accomplishment would become the greatest feat of his lifetime in tearing down the two pillars of a temple that would crush the enemies of God to the tune of 3,000 men and women who worshiped their gods, who gave glory to their gods, who sacrificed their kids to their gods, who did atrocious things in the name of their gods. And God's judgment was coming upon the Philistines. But God's judgment had to first come upon Samson before it came upon the Philippines. (laughs) Philistines. See, God's judgment may first have to come upon you in order for you to completely repent and to rely on him. He wants to purify you. He wants to change your attitude. Are you willing? Are you like the Philistines who believe that their little g-gods have gotten them to where they are? You see, the God of heaven and earth says, you've got to become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. The first in the kingdom is the one who is last. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who serves. Jesus went to the cross, an innocent man. He showed us the way because he was the way. He showed us what the truth really is in the midst of the enemy's deceptions. And he came to bring us new life through a life that he sacrificed on the cross. Samson had to learn the hard way. Do you have to learn the hard way? Do I have to learn the hard way? What's it going to take for you to be completely humbled in order to be filled and poured out for God? As our worship team comes forward to close this out today, where are you? Are your eyes gouged out? You feel like you're grinding grain in a prison somewhere? Maybe that's where God has you so that he can get your attention to say, I can use you now.
You don't have to stoop that low or to be that low in order to be used of God, but you do have to be completely humble. And to be completely humble, that means I'm not thinking about myself. But I am seeing myself in proper perspective in relation to God. If you're in the fight of your life right now, maybe it's time to wave the white flag and to say, all right, God, I want you to fight for me. I know that I'm only going to win this battle that I'm in the midst of right now. If you were leading the charge, I can't do it anymore. If you're fighting a battle of your own attitude or resentment, maybe you've got unforgiveness that's still in you, that has a hold of you, you're not going to win that battle unless you allow Jesus to come in and do a healing work in your life. And you surrender all of that nastiness to him so that he can, the master gardener, uproot and prune you into something that can bear amazing fruit for his kingdom. If you want to be prayed for or with, you can come to my right, your left. These altars are open. If you want to reconcile yourself to God in private without anybody bothering you, you can come to my left, your right. But don't leave today without complete surrender to God. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and righteous and good. You are also a God who disciplines those he loves. And sometimes the discipline is painful, but the discipline is because you want to bring us to the point of humility to where our ears are perked up to hear what you have to say and our lives are open enough to receive what you have to offer. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Heavenly Father, I pray. It's in Jesus' name we ask all of these things. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.